Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to invest in yourself and tune in today. As the name says, we are business creators. We have entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have the marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have the folks who help others create their businesses, and we have do-it-yourselfers who like to have their own hands on the levers as they market and grow. If you are one or more of the above, and many of us, including me, are all four of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. We're also on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe. Over 190 episodes will be available for your immediate perusal. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated because it helps us help more business creators just like you. And fresh content appears every single week, delivered directly to your iTunes. So today we are going to add a very interesting and exciting entry to our track on finances. Uh, we've had CPAs, we've had CIAs, uh, Certified Internal Auditors, and we've had other types of taxation professionals come on to the Business Creators Radio Show. And I love this topic, and our listeners love it too. Because on the one hand, as entrepreneurs and business creators, we're looking to increase our cash flow. But at the same time, we're looking to manage our cash flow and plug the leaks in our cash flow. So when we have somebody who's going to be able to come onto our show and tell us how to keep more of what we make or how to keep more of what you make, I immediately reach out and say, yes, let's get you booked on this thing. Let's get you on the Business Creators Radio Show, and let's make this happen. So today, I'm very excited to introduce to you Craig Cody, CPA, who is the author of Secrets of a Tax-Free Life, Surprising Write-Off Strategies Most Business Owners Miss. Let me just tell you a little bit about Craig before we introduce him. He's a certified tax coach, certified public accountant, business owner, and former New York City police officer with 17 years experience on the force. In addition to being a CPA for the past 15 years, he's also a certified tax coach. As a certified tax coach, Craig belongs to a select group of tax practitioners throughout the country who undergo extensive training and continued education on various tax planning techniques and strategies to become, as well as remain certified. With this organization, Craig has co-authored an Amazon bestseller, as I mentioned before, Secrets of a Tax-Free Life. And i got to tell you, I love the idea of a tax-free life. So, Craig, welcome aboard. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So what we like to do here, just before we dive in, and we have a lot to cover today, is... If you could just tell us a little bit more about your personal journey and what led you to the intersection of brilliance and passion where you serve business creators today. I know I read off your bio and everything. We like to get to know a little bit more about the person so we understand where they're coming from. Like, what brought you here? Oh, let's see. I started out um, thinking I was going to work on Wall Street, wound up following in my dad's footsteps and uh, becoming a police officer. I did that uh, for a number of years and, um, you know, was ready for a new endeavor. I kind of fell in love with taxes. I went back to school. I got my accounting degree. I left the police department. I went to work for an international firm. And, uh, you know, accounting is a great field where you could actually work somewhere and start your own business. And I did that. And, you know, here we are today. Absolutely. So let's begin by defining our terms. Uh, if you could explain to me, what is tax planning? Well, if, if you ask most accountants, tax planning is they meet with their client or they have a phone call with their client in December and figure out, okay, it looks like you're going to owe this much in tax. You need to make a payment by January 15th. That's what most right. accountants and CPAs consider tax planning. That's really looking in a rearview mirror. What we, we do is we look forward and we say, okay, what can we do different in the future and take advantage of all the various tax code uh, and regulations that are out there to legally reduce our tax liability at the end of the year. So we start in the beginning of the year and we work 
throughout the year on accomplishing those goals. It's really a yeah, matter of helping people. I'm sorry. It's more a matter of uh, helping people keep more of what they make. Because as a business owner, we all know we work, you know, it's not a nine-to-five job. Absolutely. Yeah, sorry I missed there. I thought you were – I thought you were finished, but yeah, that's the point that I was hoping our listeners pick up is that uh, tax planning is not something that looks backwards at what's already happened. It looks forward to what's going to happen and how you manage it based on what you know now. A little bit of a different definition because in most cases when we think of dealing with our CPA, we think we give them the receipts, the, the financial statements, the filings, what have you, and they turn it into a tax return. Uh, But what we're talking about here is actually managing that process before it happens, I think is a very simple way of describing it. So if you could take us just through a little brief tour through the tax plan process before we get into some specific questions, some of which came from our listeners who knew you were going to be on today, that'd be great. You know, just sort of walk us through the basics of what the tax plan process is. Well, the the basic process is, is really very simple. Um, we, we typically will have a conversation with a business owner or a real estate investor. At that point, um, we'll ask them to send us uh, copies of the last year or two years' worth of business and personal tax returns. I will do an analysis, and I kind of put my analysis into a one-page presentation, and we look in an analysis for missed opportunities and missed deductions, and, and sometimes we find mistakes and we quantify that into, okay, this is what you've missed in deductions. This is what your tax rate is. This is what, you know, your tax savings could be in year one. Um, if you'd like to go forward, you know, there's a fee. It's 100% refundable. And we basically get a credit card. We do the plan. We go over the plan. We help them institute the plan. And sometimes we work with them on an ongoing basis. So, honestly, it's, there's not a whole lot of rocket science involved, but it's really taking the time to look for those opportunities. And so that's the process. Right, right. Yeah, yeah very, very simple and even simpler when you describe it, which is great. So, um, what, so I think we've already pretty much covered the difference between an accountant using an accountant versus using a tax planner. So uh, tell us a little bit more detail, you know, why it's better to be proactive rather than reactive when dealing with taxes. In other words, why are we here? Sure. So, so you know, most accountants, most CPAs are very good at doing the compliance work. They put the right numbers in the right boxes, all right? Right. But it stops there. So what we do is well, – to go back to the question is we look for those opportunities. It's kind of thinking outside the box, not the way the typical accountant is trained. And what can we do a little bit differently? What What is your particular situation that we can take advantage of different things within the tax code? You know, and, you know, for myself, you know, we undergo a tremendous amount of training. I'm part of a group and we undergo, a tre- I just come back from San Diego for three days and throughout the year, there's constant continuing education and conferences, et cetera, to learn additional strategies and and ways to save people money. Right. Now, right. Absolutely. Now, I may not have. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. I may not have answered your question correctly. No, that was that was fantastic. That was fantastic. Uh, so, uh, tell us now. Uh, you know, what are some, you know, what are some good ways? that business owners can reduce their taxes. We want to get our listeners thinking about how they can apply this and why they should work with someone like you who is a certified tax planner, certified tax coach. Okay. Well, the biggest mistake we see is people fail to plan. You know, they, they go see their CPA, their accountant, you know, very infrequently. They talk with them very infrequently. You know, the doctor doesn't call you up and say, are you sick? You know, you call the doctor and you say you're not feeling feeling good, and he could prescribe something to help you out. So it really just starts with, you know, being in contact with clients, talking to them, seeing what's going on, and figuring out what they can do. But if you don't have that conversation, if you don't have that communication, you can't help them. So I, that's why I like to say the biggest mistake people make is failing to plan. 
they'll research a car. They'll spend a lot of time doing stuff like that, but they typically don't spend a, a lot of time looking for ways to reduce what could be their biggest expense, which is taxes. Right. Right, right. Very true. So, uh, this is the – go ahead. So, uh, and, so that's the biggest one. I would say the second biggest uh, issue we see is the wrong entity choice. You know, you have your typical sole proprietor, your LLC, your single-member LLC, your partnership, your corporation, your S-corporation. And right. each of those, depending on your particular circumstances, can be the right entity choice and give you the most tax planning ability. So oftentimes what happens is a client starts a business, they go to the attorney, and the attorney is a big fan of LLCs. So they form an LLC. There's no conversation that goes on between the attorney and the CPA. So that would be the second biggest mistake we see where it's the wrong entity choice. And um, just that alone can cost a lot of money. Right. And, you know, a, there are ways to fix there are ways to fix the wrong entity choice, which is a good thing. But that comes with planning. Right. Okay, so uh, thinking about this some more, you know, I'm reminded of something because when I started my business 14 years ago, one of the first steps I took was to form a limited liability company, an LLC. Uh, actually, it was the very first thing I did when I decided I wanted to have an entrepreneurial venture, and the second thing was I hired a CPA. So uh, that was just the trajectory I took because that's what I knew at the time. Now, uh, nobody that I knew who was an entrepreneur came to me with advice like you gave, which is, hey, is an LLC the right entity for you? Um, are you following as a C or as an S? Or uh, should you be doing a, a different type of corporation or something like that? Nobody asked me those questions. What they came to me with was, man, why why'd you do that? You don't need to do that. Just follow as a sole proprietor. My friend who's a lawyer said that you don't need to form an LLC unless you're making $2 million a year. So where does that misconception come from that we don't need a corporate entity at all? I, I'm not really sure where that one comes from, um, but that, that's a big misconception. Um, and you know, and, and you know, like you said, you form the LLC, and a, a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that you can change your tax criteria for that LLC, and sometimes you could even do it retroactively. And when you do it retroactively, it can save you a lot of money. So, um, so it it is a misconception. You know, two million dollars. You know, maybe they're talking about it from a liability perspective. You know, and that's why it's important for the accountant and the attorney to have some kind of a conversation. Right, right. What I also, with the way I phrased that, was also very deliberate. The, the one person said, "My friend, who's a lawyer." They didn't say, "My lawyer." So right. how do you know right. that? Uh, how do you know that such a person really did get legal advice? In fact, as I recall, I tested that theory a little bit, and I said, "Huh, you know, I'm wondering if you're right here." Now I just got started with this a week ago. Maybe I should just double check before I dive in. So is there any chance that uh, you know your lawyer friend would be willing to do a consultation with me? And they said, "Oh, I don't know. I think they're kind of booked." And I'm thinking to myself. What attorney will not take on a new client? Right, exactly. Which, which means my BS meter was uh, pretty much lighting up bright red and going eh, 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 on that one. Right. So uh, we have to be careful of the advice we take, and we need to make sure that we're speaking with people like you, who's a CPA and a certified tax coach. So this is where it starts to get fun, and this is what I think a lot of our listeners tuned in for based on some of the questions we have coming up here. What are some of the top write-offs that most business most business owners miss? People love these stories. Right. So, I mean, there there are a whole bunch of them, and some of these really depend on what entity structure you are in, and that's why it's nice to be able to kind of you know adapt your entity structure depending on your individual facts and circumstances. But you know, there's you know there's something called a medical expense reimbursement plan. Now. 
which basically allows you to write off all your out-of-pocket medical costs. So that could be your kids' braces. I mean, braces go for around $6,000 a pop these days, all right? So depending on where your tax bracket is, that could save you $2,000. Um, but it's it's entity-specific, and, you know, you, you have to make sure you do some planning so you could use that. That's a medical expense reimbursement plan, you know. Then we have, uh, you know, hiring your kids. You know, what type of business do you have, okay? How do you hire your kids? The tax court says you can hire your kids as, as, as young as seven years old, okay? I like 11 and 12. Wow. Okay. You need to, yeah, 11, seven, exactly. And that's the tax court. I, I like to, you know, consider myself a little bit more conservative than that. But um, those are things that people miss. And, you know, when you're in that, you know, 25% and higher and then you throw in some state taxes, you know, a couple of thousand dollars here or there make a big difference. I mean, I know for myself, you know, my kids all went to private high school and they worked for me, and basically they got paid. The money went into their bank account, and then the high school tuition came out of their their account. So basically it made that tuition tax-free to me. So it took a little bit of planning, and yes, we had to open up a bank account, and yes, we had to document everything that they did, because the last thing you want to do is do something, you know, incorrectly and have the IRS come and ask a question and not be able to substantiate it. So it takes planning, it takes a little bit of time, but it's worthwhile. So those are two common things that we see out there. Um, another thing is, you know, you'll see people, they'll, they'll hire their parents and, you know, because they're supporting their parents and, they're, you know, they're giving them a W-2 wage, but mom and dad are really not doing anything, which is, you know, really way wrong. God forbid somebody looks at that, you're going to be in trouble. But there are other ways, like if if you have equipment that you could gift to your parents and lease it back to your business, so you're basically accomplishing the same thing. You're giving them money. They're picking it up as income. They're not making a lot of money, so they're paying no tax. And you're getting a tax deduction for something that previously you were just paying after tax. So once again, it takes the knowledge of what your client is doing and the time to prepare and figure out a strategy that's going to work best for them. Right. Uh, you know, because we hear a lot about hiring our kids and hiring our parents and what have you. Let me uh, roll back a little bit and just make sure I heard you correctly. So basically, as far as your own children and uh, sending them to the private high school, uh, you have them as employees of your business, you paid them a salary, you paid them a wage, it went into a bank account, and then from that bank account, the tuition for the high school was paid. So technically, they were paying their own tuition. Did I get that right? Correct. Technically, they were paying their own tuition. Right, right. Well, I, I wouldn't even say technically because you had them working for you. They were doing things in your office and for your business. They were earning that money, and we had the yeah. documentation to prove it. Right. So you so multiply that by three. Right. You multiply that by three, and you know you have maybe eighteen thousand dollars a year in an additional deduction, which just saved you six thousand dollars or more. Good. So uh, let me ask this: Are there any limitations on what you can hire your kids to do? I mean, because I think the uh, I think the powers that be might look at it funny if you hire your seven-year-old as your CFO, for instance. So uh, whether it's any official limitations or common sense limitations, what should people be aware of before they start funneling a portion of their salary through their kid's bank account? Well, it's obviously common sense limitations. I mean, you can't pay your child that's 10 years old to be your uh, CFO, okay? But you can pay him you know, depending on the, the business you're in, to do office work, it's got to be a reasonable wage. It has to be minimum wage. So, you know, you're, you're talking, depending on what they're doing, they're going to be making typically somewhere between $10 and $15 an hour. Okay. Yeah, that's, you know, better, than I, that's better than I did when I was uh, 
at that age. I worked in fast food as a part-time job, and I certainly did not make $10 an hour there, and uh, the work was hard. Right. Exactly. So it's, it has to be a reasonable wage, and you have to be able to substantiate that, you know, this is what you would pay somebody else to do. You know, and as long as you're reasonable, you know, you, you should be able to do that. You know, and like I said, the tax court, you know, has ruled kids as the youngest seven can do this. Wow, I'll have to bear that in mind. All right. So, uh, so now in your firm, do you just work with local clients, or are they spread out geographically? Well, we're we're located in uh, Nassau County, New York, which is on Long Island, and we have clients as far away as Oregon. Okay. So we we go coast to coast, and you know. Clients up and down the West Coast, up and down the East Coast, and throughout the Midwest. So uh, the, the Internet's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, the days of just dealing with somebody locally are long, long gone. And, um, you know, we work with people throughout the country. Right. Right. For the first 10 years I worked with my CPA, uh, I lived in Pennsylvania in my business, which has always been in Nevada limited liability company was uh, docked in Pennsylvania. So in 2013, I relocated myself and the headquarters of the business to Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, my CPA uh, told me that he had to get some sort of, or actually rather he said it's a good thing that he had some sort of certification or something like that that allowed him to do tax preparation for a Nevada resident and a, and a company that was docked in Nevada. So uh, is it the same for tax coaches, or does being a certified tax coach allow you to serve anybody nationwide without any per-state considerations or licensure or anything like that? Well, you don't need a license in various – as a CPA, I don't need to be licensed in, in other states unless okay. I'm signing off on – unless I'm signing off on audited or reviewed financial statements. That's that, That's actually part of the reason – why he had that going on is because he had other clients in Nevada already, which kind of greased the wheels. Right. So if, if you're signing off on financial statements, then you need to be licensed in that state. But that right. being said, you need to be aware of what the state taxation rules are in that state. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I have a broad network of people throughout the country that we get to consult with when we have somebody coming in from a, a different state and, you know, there's a, a number of different state courses you can take online. So that's just, you know, as a matter of uh, operations for us, if we take on a client in a state we haven't done business before, we'll take a couple of um, state taxation courses online so we're familiar with what the different rules are. Okay. And, All right. And then you have certain states where there are no state tax anyway, so it doesn't really make a difference. Okay. But there are certain states that have certain rules and certain things are not deductible in, in that state that are deductible on your federal taxes. So you have to just be aware. Sure. Sure. So here's a, here's a question from one of our listeners. This is something I'm kind of curious about, too. Uh, we're talking about uh, our tax planning. We're talking about how we manage the flow of our money. And this person is asking about, like, let's say, for instance, you – have a home, a home office. Uh, so under what circumstances should you claim the home office as a tax deduction? And is there anything you need to know about your home office? Like, uh, does, it, uh, does it have to be constructed a certain way or does it have to be defined a certain way in order for you to legally write it off? Well, it has to be um, a location that's used exclusively for your home office. So you, right. you can't put a desk in your bedroom and write off the square footage of your bedroom as your home office. So that's the, the biggest, biggest hurdle you need to pass. And then you need to perform a principal activity in that home office. So let's just say you're a dentist and you do your billing from home. So as long as you're doing all your billing from that home office, it qualifies. So you have to you know, complete a pr principal activity you know, from that location. So years right. ago, so, 
years ago, people would say, oh, that's a red flag if I take a home office deduction. You know, about two years ago, the IRS came, even came out with a safe harbor deduction. I think the number is either 1200 or $1,500 a year that, you know, as long as you meet certain criteria, you know, it's considered they're not going to look at it. But once again, you need to just document it, what you have going on there, take pictures. We keep them in the file, and you look at your square footage, and you look at the square footage of your home, and then you figure out what you're able to do. And here's a wonderful thing about, you know, having a home office, okay? You, if you have a home office, you could have a an on-premise athletic facility for your home office that's for the use of your employees and their dependents. So maybe that athletic facility could be a gym, maybe that athletic facility could be a pool, and that would let you to legally deduct the cost of maintaining and possibly building that gym or that pool. And that's really? in the tax code. So yes. That's, inter that's interesting. So uh, let, let's just come to brass tacks here. Let's say you wanted to get a weight bench and an elliptical machine, and you wanted to have some fitness equipment at home, and you have an extra room in the house, so you want to devote that room to be the exercise room. So you get those, you know, you get that work, that weight bench, you get that elliptical machine, you get a yoga mat, and you get things like that, and you can designate that as a fitness facility that your company provides to its employees. And you as an employee get to use those facilities. Your family, as your dependents get to use that facility, so now you're basically at, you're providing a perk to your employees and you're using another room of the house, and that becomes deductible under certain circumstances. That is very correct. Wow. So that, that's a nice just, perk. Yeah, no, yeah, and I was just going to ask about the swimming pool because I've heard about that one before. How do you quantify the swimming pool? Just simply, uh, you know, the volume of the pool or the uh, or the, the square footage taken up by the pool? Is that how you deduct it? Tip, typically, we'll add that to the square footage of the house, and we'll take it that way. But then you have just the cost of if you de if you choose to depreciate the pool, okay? If you if you choose to write off the expenses of just maintaining that pool which can be a couple thousand dollars a year. So it's something that you're right. already doing, but now you're doing it, you know, through your business and you're doing it legally. Wow, that's that's very interesting. So here's another question along those lines. Uh, some people will, uh, in terms of deducting automotive expenses, they'll deduct mileage that's used for business purposes. And other folks will just simply have their business rent or lease or buy a car for them. So what... You know, what are some of the criteria that you would go through to help somebody at least get started thinking about how they should position their car and their whole financial situation? Right, and it all depends on how how much business use that car is used for. You know, so um, I usually do not do not account. Uh, you know, meet too many people where their car is used 100% for business, but it does happen. Right. So um, if you're not using it 100% for business, maybe you're using it 80% or 70%, then you're able to, you know, write off 70% of the costs. Um, if you're doing, you know, you have an option of choosing the direct cost method, which is, you know, what you're actually paying, or the mileage cost, which is basically there's a rate per mile that the government gives you and you get to deduct it. So if it's 50 cents a mile, let's just say you do 10,000 miles, you have a $5,000 auto expense and that flows through to your tax return. So you have to see which one works best and once you choose a method and uh, you cannot change it for the life of that vehicle. I so you think. can't go back and forth. You can't go back and forth year to year. So and there's so many apps out there now to track your mileage and stuff like that, you know, that it, you know, that part is no longer a huge problem for people. Oh, I see. I see. So, but just to be clear, though, let's say, for instance, we lease a car next week, and we make a decision about how we're going to handle that car. So, for the length of that lease, or as long as we hold on to that car, if we run out the whole lease, or if we buy, if we decide to buy the car at the end of the lease, whatever it is, for as long as that particular vehicle is in the equation, the decision you made when you first integrated into your financial picture is the one you need to stick with. Correct. Correct. So, right. Okay. You know, typically, typically, and, and this is not a general rule, but more often than not, 
if you're using the vehicle predominantly for business and you're leasing the vehicle and you're not going over on the mileage side, it, you, you typically would get a bigger deduction uh, of leasing a vehicle than you would if you purchased it because you have to depreciate it and there's limitations on depreciation for a vehicle. Um, and then there is an add back that the government has for, you know, personal use and leasing a vehicle, but if it's almost like when you look at the numbers, it's such a small number that you add back. It's it's kind of a little bit silly. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, here's, here's another very common debate. Better to lease or better to buy your vehicle? Right, and, and that comes down to what your specific circumstances are. Obviously, if you're doing 25,000 miles a year, it's probably – going to be better off buying that vehicle. Sure. Um, it also depends on the price of the vehicle. Is it an SUV where you can, you know, depreciate most of that vehicle the first year and get a big upfront deduction? So you have to look at, you know, really individual specifics, the type of vehicle, and go from there. And that's, what, once again, that's planning. That's communicating with the professional. Great. Absolutely. That, that, that's great. Uh, so... Um... Tell us a little bit more. Uh, I want to just sort of take a break here from some of the specifics. And tell us a little bit more about your book, Secrets of a Tax-Free Life, which is definitely something that I'm going to have to pick up for myself. I just ordered myself a copy right before we got on the line here because I'm so intrigued by the title. Uh, that in itself sold me. So that was uh, – it was actually – I co-authored that with about nine other people. It came out about three or four years ago. And it's basically about um, the – various things that business owners can do. I recently wrote my second book. I did it on my, my own, which was the 10 most expensive tax mistakes that cost business owners thousands. And um, if I could make a little plug here, um, I'd offer a free copy for your ris listeners. If they um, go to my website at craigcodyandcompany.com forward slash B as in business, C as in creators, R as in radio. And they could fill out a quick form there, and we'll send them a copy. Great. Wow, thank you very much for that. So that all they need to do is go to that web page. Uh, I'm sure you'll have um, a link on your show notes also. Um, but it's it's basically the 10, 10 most expensive tax mistakes that cost business owners thousands. You know, And if we wow. could save a business owner fifteen dollars to $20,000 a year, you know, they could do a lot with that money, whether it's put more money into retirement, you know, buying shoes, you know, plan a vacation and put money away or invest more money into their business to grow faster. Right. Okay. Good. So now uh, now here's another question we got from the audience. Uh, and this person is asking the following. When you have a mortgage on your house or you have ownership of your house, is it possible to have a corporation own your house instead of you? In other words, you have some other entity that actually owns your house, and can that be used as part of the tax planning process? Well, if 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 an entity owns your house, you need to pay reasonable rent, and okay. you're giving up. You know, you're giving up the. Uh, I'll say for a married couple, the five hundred thousand dollar exclusion on a sale of a home. So. That's typically not something that um, I could see making sense for most people to right. put their primary residence into a corporation. Because if you have it in a corporation and you're using it for personal use, you need to pay rent. Right. And I rent think. has to so be reasonable. The, yeah. Exactly. So, so we can't do the thing where we rent it for a dollar, basically. We have to pay a real rent. Exactly, exactly. And then you're giving up a lot of, a lot of, you know, perks that the government has given you to own that home. Right. Got it. Got it. Got it. So what if you're what if you're uh, renting somewhere like an apartment or a townhouse? Uh, in that case, does it make any sense to wrap an entity around that, or should you just run that through your own personal finances? Again, well, that's, I that's know there's no clearly... right answer. Some, but what are some of the considerations that go into that? Well, I mean, it, clearly, if it's going to be a deductible expense, it has to have a business purpose. And, you know, the fact that you're sleeping there and you're making your meals there, I think 
makes it pretty tough to say that there is a business purpose. Okay. So I, I think that's, that's not the kind of planning you want to do. That's the kind of planning that, you know, if the IRS looks at it, you know, they're going to send you a bill. Right. So I wouldn't recommend that strategy. Okay. All right. So, uh, so basically, we shouldn't because uh, I've because I've seen that advice uh, being being given out, and I was just uh, I just wanted to add, make sure we have got that question in. One of our listeners had that uh, question as well. So yeah, I, that, uh, here's that, a. I'm sorry. I think that one would raise an eyebrow. I see. Okay, so uh, so here's another question. Um, in terms of uh, you know, what is the alternative minimum tax, and uh, does that play any role here? Is that something that anybody should consider? Oh, it definitely plays a role. The alternative minimum tax is when the government says, okay, we're going to compute your taxes per the tax code, and then we're going to figure them a second way, and that second way is we're going to add back certain deductions on schedule that you've taken on Schedule A of your tax returns, such as your real estate taxes, your estate income taxes, um, your unreimbursed business expenses. We're going to add them back and do a new calculation, and we take that new calculation and we compare it to your original calculation, and if there's a difference, if the alternative calculation is higher, that difference is added to your tax. So by doing proper planning, you can sometimes reduce that alternative minimum tax by working with the different entities that you have and, and you know, seeing what of those expenses can be actual business expenses. I see. So when I see it when I see a certain tax returns where people put down all this unreimbursed business expenses and stuff like that on their personal return you know, I kind of tell them it looks real pretty, but you don't get any benefit of it. Right. Right. Okay. So uh, now uh, another thing we want to cover here is um, is debt management. And uh, again, I know that with a lot of the things we ask, is there is no one right answer. So one of the things we just want to get our listeners thinking about as they make their decision to work with a certified tax coach such as yourself is just to get their minds kind of running here. Uh, a lot of the businesses have uh, situations, especially our entrepreneurial ventures and our smaller businesses, where especially when they're getting started or if they hit a little bit of a downturn, they uh, utilize those generous lines of credit that are extended to them by those famous financial entities, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express. So they end up with a little bit of credit card debt that's kind of floating around out there um, that's easier said than done paying it off because, uh, A, you still need to cover the expenses of the business, and, B, uh, the interest will sometimes eat you alive. So uh, in terms of your tax planning, is it sometimes a good idea to not pay off all your credit cards as soon as possible? Well, obviously, it depends on what the interest rate is, and that's a you know a right. business by business decision. Obviously, zero percent versus twenty percent is a big difference, um, and you know debt can really crush a small business. So you need to manage debt correctly. Um, you know, people think, well, it's deductible. Yeah, the interest might be deductible, but you still have to pay it out. So. Depending right. on what your tax bracket is, you know, you might get forty cents on a dollar back, but you still have to pay that dollar every every month or every year. That's very true, but personal experience, believe me. So, uh, yeah, but I've also you know heard the advice that uh, you know sometimes there's advantages. Um, I've also seen happen where you pay off so much debt that suddenly deductions disappear. Yeah, but would, I'd rather have a dollar in my pocket than a deduction. Sure. So sure. If, if, it's, what about if, it's an, if it's an expense that you need to incur, you know, that's one thing. But to, to incur an expense just for the deduction doesn't make sense. Got it. Got it. All right. So uh, now let's talk about documentation. Uh, you know what I've noticed over the past 
five years is um, there hasn't been the same demands on me to save every scrap of paper. So uh, as part of the tax planning process, um, how deep do people need to go in terms of how they document every, you know, one of their business expenses? Is, is in some cases, is it sufficient to have the credit card statement that identifies what expenses they are or the bank account statement that shows the names of the vendors? Uh, and, you know, I notice a lot of cases, they don't even give you a receipt anymore. So how do you deal with all yeah, this? It, it really depends on what the expense is and, uh, you know, the, the I always say the bigger the expense, the more documentation you should have. But if you're paying vendors, you should keep those receipts. You know, the vendor sends you an invoice that should go into a file. You paid it. So down the road, if you get audited, they're going to want to see, you know, see that receipt or that invoice. So you should keep all your records. And, you know, we typically say seven years from the time the return is filed, you should keep that record. But more is always better. I mean, you don't need that, you know, $5 receipt, but, you know, the bigger it gets, the the more it is, and you need to be able to substantiate it. And, you know, electronically things, the way things are today, it's a lot easier to to keep things uh, versus just putting them in a file and uh, having a file that just grows and grows every week. Yeah, because what I've, no what I've noticed here, just looking back at some of my own documentation is using the seven-year role, we recently sh shredded a whole bunch of paperwork. Uh, we, uh, we were able to take out maybe about six or seven years worth of paperwork from the beginning of the business. And man, back in the day, I had entire boxes, like big cardboard boxes with multiple binders inside, uh, devoted to just one year of paperwork. And now if you look at the 2016-2017, uh, not only are we talking about something that's thinner than the three inch binder in terms of all the documentation I have available, but a lot of what my CPA needs is actually conveyed by my CPA being able to log into things and download what he needs. So that's, exactly. I guess, a benefit in and of itself. But what's also been conveyed to me by various people is that, as you said, you don't necessarily have to worry about every $4.95 expense. Um, I'm just thinking of entrepreneurs, for instance, who own, because you know how a lot of entrepreneurs will own dozens, if not hundreds, of Internet domains. And, I mean, how do you document all those receipts from, say, GoDaddy or something like that when it feels like literally almost every day you have a domain renewing? I mean, that turns into a lot of paperwork. I go back to, like, 2007, and uh, I have about 300 pages just on domain renewals. Right. And it, it's it's pretty clear that, you know, Something with GoDaddy has to do with the domain and that you're using it for a business versus, right. you know, maybe something, you know, where you're entertaining a client and you're taking them to dinner or you're buying a piece of office equipment, you know, from Staples. Well, is it office? Is it, you know, furniture? Is it something for your home? So having that receipt makes a lot more sense. Uh, but, yeah. I, you know, I recommend that, you know, clients hold on to that stuff and, you know, when we work with clients, a lot of times we're going to, you know, make sure we have copies of the documents that we need, you know, so we could feel satisfied that in the event that they return, gets looked at, we have everything versus going to hunt for it. And you never want to have to go hunt for stuff after the fact. It's easier to have it ahead of time. Right. So even though, uh, even though for certain things there may just not be a receipt, it's a good idea to maintain your documentation. I know with my CPA, his primary concern is to make sure that I have all of my credit card statements nice and neat, in chronological order, and everything there before I turn it into him. And then he can jump off those returns and ask me for any additional documentation or any questions he has about the expenses. Right. That's, okay. you know, this way he has everything he needs. Okay, good. Now here's a... Here's another topic, and I know this. Uh, I know from previous episodes on ta taxation and financial questions uh, that uh, this is something that a number of our listeners are interested in. Is let's say that the business is looking to secure financing, whether it's a bank loan or an angel investor or a line of credit, anything that involves bringing in uh, more you know, borrowed money into the business. How does tax planning impact that? And what should we be aware of in our tax planning to put ourselves in a situation in the current environment to make it easier or facilitate the process of getting approved for loans? 
Well, you 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 should have that conversation with with the person that you're doing the planning with, to so they know what you're looking to do, and so that could be right. built into your planning process. And and you know, different banks, uh, you know, look at things differently. And sometimes banks will add back, like like banks add back depreciation because they know it's not a cash expense. Right. So different banks will add back different things. Um, so, but it's not, it's a, especially when it comes to entities, you need to make sure that you have that conversation because you know the way the banks work is if you're looking to purchase real estate and that entity hasn't been around for two years, they may not accept the income from that entity because it hasn't been around long enough. Now, I, I think things are easing up a little bit in that respect, but, you know, the last five to seven years have been tough as far as that goes. Yeah, I remember, you know, pre-2009, 2010, I would be sitting in my home office and I would have loan officers from banks show up unannounced without an appointment, just knock on my door. And, and these were like actual like major banks. These weren't fly-by-nights or anything like that. These were your majors showing up with pre-completed loan paperwork where basically all we had to do was fill in the dollar amounts I wanted and they would make a quick phone call and then I could have the loan if I wanted. Now, with you know, I basically turned them all away because I was already thinking, why are you showing up on my doorstep without an appointment? I don't like this. But the point I'm getting at is we go from that to fast forward to 2012, 2013, my business had just paid down a whole bunch of debt, including a debt consolidation loan that we paid off early. And in a better financial situation than we had been five years earlier, now we're being treated as a deadbeat. For instance, uh, uh, one bank uh, found a way to count the balance of my personal student loan three different ways against my business in one transaction. Right. That's, that's, that's where it's gone. It's starting to get a little better but it's really gone the exact opposite, and that's why it's so hard for small businesses to get loans. So that's why it's, it's more important that they keep more of what they make so they can self-finance what they can. Yeah, yeah, and, and, that, and that's been you know, one of my challenges because during the Great Recession, you know, we had to use some of the lines of credit from Visa and MasterCard, and uh, we have a pretty big draw and a fairly substantial line of credit that we were offered early on, and, uh, and, you know, the banks were absolutely no help whatsoever. And what's funny is now that my business is in a situation where we've paid a lot of that out, uh, now suddenly we're starting to hear from banks again. We're starting to get the phone calls and the letters and the offers. And, you know, my first thought is, well, hey, you weren't there when, you re you weren't there when I really needed you. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, I, I don't even understand why you're contacting me now, like I'm going to do business with you. But, uh, yeah, but it seems to be so true that uh, it's easy to get money when you don't need it, and it's difficult to get money when you do need it. And from where I'm sitting, this is where the tax planning is so important. So the more money you keep in the first place, the less you're going to need as you go along, as a general statement. Correct. Correct. Right. That's very okay? true. Yeah. So that's just something that I wanted to make sure our listeners heard, and this is why this is so important, because it's great to – get big tax refunds, but Craig, as I think you would say, uh, a tax refund is nothing more than repayments on an interest-free loan you made to the government. Correct. And if, if you're making those big quarterly estimated payments and we could cut them in half or save you a nice chunk of money and, you know, $20,000 a year is $5,000 a quarter, you know, that's a lot of money. You could do a lot with that. Yeah, certainly so. Uh, certainly so. Uh, now, uh, I guess another question that I have is uh, when people start taking advantage of more of the tax laws, and this is, I think is the reason why a lot of people don't engage in tax planning because they're afraid of, as you said earlier, red flags going up and getting audited. Uh, what do people need to be aware of um, other than simply being diligent to – reduce the chances or mitigate the, the possibility of being audited because even if they're doing everything, they have everything documented down to a T, just the idea of being audited is frightening in terms of how much time it's going to take up and money. Right. Well, you know, just getting a letter from the IRS is usually frightening enough for most people. 
Um, nobody likes yeah. to get them, even though probably at least more than 50% of the time they're mistakes anyway. But if you document right. what you're doing and, and the reasons and the, you know how you're doing it, and you are audited, or more often than not, it's a, it's a notice of request for information, and you provide the information, it's not a big deal. If you don't document okay. it, that's when it becomes a problem. So when I part think. of the tax plan process is to document the things you're doing, so in the event that somebody looks at it, you have the documentation to prove this is why I did it, this is how we did it, and this is why this, this was paid the way it was paid. And our tax plan includes the code section of the IRS that says you could do whatever it is that we were telling you you can do. I see. All right. So I think that's just about all the questions we have from the audience here. Let me just double check because uh, sometimes, as I said, our audience will see who's going to be on the Business Creators Radio Show and now email some things in advance. Let me just double-check here and make sure that we got them all. And I believe that that is about it. Oh, actually, no, I have I have one more. Um, there are these things called, I believe they're called HSAs, health savings accounts. And Correct. how do those play into tax planning because I understand the purpose of an HSA is allow you to deposit money sort of like into a sort of like a separate bank account just uh, to simplify the conversation where if you have medical expenses you can draw that out um, to pay medical expenses uh, because you know the nature of health insurance today uh, uh, aside from any conversations or anecdotes about the affordability is it's almost like you got to max out a credit card before your deductible means anything. Right. So HSAs, flexible spending accounts, are used to pay for expenses on a tax-deductible pre-tax manner, not tax-deductible, but on a pre-tax basis that normally you would pay out of pocket. Um, HSAs are typically affiliated with high-deductible tax plan, um, health insurance plans. But, you know, if if you have um, a high-deductible plan you sh and you have the option of having an HSA, you should use it, okay? Not everybody does it. But that's where we have a medical expense reimbursement plan that comes in for certain types of entities. So if you don't have access to uh, an HSA, you can use a medical expense reimbursement plan and get the same benefit. Right, right, absolutely. So we're right near the top of the hour, Craig, and, you know, this is one of those um, conversations we have sometimes where um, it's very factual and there are a lot of specifics that uh, give our listeners something to at least think about. So uh, just one more time, I wanted to make sure our listeners were aware of the very generous gift you're making of your book, How to Keep More of What You Make. So if you could just share with us one more time that link uh, that people can go sure. and get a free copy of the book. It's uh, www.craigcodyandcompany.com forward slash B is in business, C is in creators, R is in radio. Uh, there will be a link there, and you can fill it out, and we will send you a copy of our book, The Ten Most Expensive Tax Mistakes That Cost Business Owners Thousands. Man, and I already they paid also... for my copy, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and you could also um, reach out to us uh, via email through our website um, or phone, which is 516-869-4051. Very good. Very good. So, uh, so Craig, Cody, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You bet, you bet. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.